everybody, this is JP from JP Ross in the Seam Podcast. Thanks for tuning in today. Today we've got Josh Trumbly, who's here from Hornback Boats. Josh is the successor to Pete Hornback, who started Hornback Boats, and you're going to hear the story about that. A lot about Pete, a lot about Josh, a lot about the boats, and these ultralight boats, which are really become a great way to explore backcountry ponds in the Adirondack Park and many other places around the United States. So tune in for that. We appreciate that you're here. We do want to thank you for tuning in to In The Seam Podcast. In The Seam Podcast is brought to you by J.P. Ross Flyrod Company. You can reach us at jprossflyrods.com or smallstreamflyfishing.com. Both will take you to the same place, and we sure do appreciate that. Coming up on In The Seam episodes, we have Peter Buchanan-Smith. Peter was the founder of Best Made, which is an awesome company. I look up to him a lot. He's got some great stuff to talk about, including his love affair with the axe as a tool and how it has inspired him to do some pretty awesome things. Following up to that, we have Mike Crawford of Upstate Guide Service. Mike will be here talking about what it's like to be an Adirondack guide and why he does it and why he loves it and a little bit about life and... um, He connects a lot with nature, and I like him a lot. And you're going to hear a lot of great stories from Mike Crawford. So you got some other stuff to tune in. I'm sorry it's been a little bit of a delay since the last podcast, but as they say, life happens, and I'm sorry about that. But we've got some great stuff in store for you coming right up. Next, Josh from Hornback Boats. Josh, welcome to In The Seam Podcast. I'm glad that you could make it. Thanks. Yeah, glad to be here. Um, so where, where are you right now? If you could let everybody know. I'm, uh, I'm in what we call the studio here at Hornbeck Boats, uh, in our main building where the shop, where where the store is and and my office upstairs, we have kind of, uh, it was a little art studio slash, uh, guest room that's got a fold out couch. And this was where, uh, (laughs) sitting right where Pete used to do all of his watercolors. Oh, cool. Uh, So, so, but it's. It's away from the phone that doesn't stop ringing. So I figured that was good to, to get it out of the back. Yeah, yeah. And um, and you guys are up in the Adirondacks. I always think of it as being Minerva, but it's not. It's where is, what town I are mean, you Minerva, in? Yeah, we, we're, we're in Olmsteadville, which is inside of Minerva. Um, but yes, we're in the Adirondacks. We're, you know, I mean, we're, we're what, a half hour north of Lake George, uh, pretty close to the North way, pretty easy to get to, but we're also not far from great paddling country in, you know, the Newcomb area, the, the Boris ponds and Essex chain. And yes, we, should, paddling right, right we should actually talk about, we should add that to our agenda to talk about Newcomb and that area. I was talking with Mark Usick when we were driving up there, we were with Wayne Weber from Wayne O's guide service. Wayne's a friend of ours. And we did some ice fishing up at hungry trout and, I was saying that that area, like we don't spend a lot of time up there, but uh, we'll get to that in a second. So, um, so I've got, uh, I've got Josh here from Hornbeck Boats and uh, Josh, if you don't mind, if you could kind of give an introduction about yourself. And I think it's, it's probably a good idea to jump maybe into a little bit about Pete and stuff and and the company. Um, And I do want to talk about boat history and stuff too, but please, please go ahead. Take the mic. Take the mic. Well, uh, I was born in Schenectady, uh, but before we even 
before I was one year old, my family moved uh, from my dad's job to just outside the Philadelphia area. So I grew up outside of Northeast Philadelphia, um, bit of a you know flatlander kind of suburban slash city boy. Um, lived down there until I was, I don't know, I think I was 19 when I packed up my car and moved out to San Diego for a while because I wanted to learn how to surf. Uh, San Diego was great. I love the fact that there was basically one season, um, <laughs> 68 and sunny every day of the week. Yeah. Uh, but eventually, you know, I came back home and uh, moved up this way to uh, the Albany area to finish my undergrad at U Albany. Um, so I finished that at U Albany, and then a few years after that, I met uh, Lee Hornbeck, who would become my wife. Um, so she was living in the Saratoga area and I was working in the Saratoga Springs area. So we met and started dating, um, a couple of years after that, we were married. The first time I had ever paddled a boat was here in what was her backyard growing up. Um, so she put me on the, you know, on the pond in one of the boats and I started paddling it. And since then I've been. I've been hooked. Uh, we've been married. It'll be 14 years this September. Uh, we got married up next to the pond here. The, the Ornbeck boats has always been a, a big part of our, our, uh, relationship and just, you know, cause it's her, it's her family. It's part of her life. Yeah. Um, so yeah, so I went from being a, uh, uh, you know, a flatlander to more of a go outside and an Adirondack or type type person my wife liked to she cut out a comic that she sent me once that was a uh, a guy sitting in his cubicle but he had turned the walls of his cubicle into uh, like a log cabin <laughs> and a big bushy beard and was wearing a flannel shirt sitting there at his desk and uh, that's the way that that Pete had been that Lee always laughed because uh, it was something that Pete had been trying to get me to, to be more and more uh, mm. now here I am yeah so well well talk a little you know probably it's a good it's a good thing to kind of introduce the company in general sure of what you guys do and 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 then you know obviously the history and stuff so um go ahead with that okay so hornbeck bolts was started uh under a tree in ann and peter hornbeck's backyard um they had moved out here from hamburg new york uh just after they were married bought a house uh, primarily for the property uh, that they had to do a lot of work on over the years. Uh, but Pete was a whitewater kayaker. Uh, he, he liked to paddle whitewater kayaks. Um, then he kind of got into the idea of, well, I'm going to build my own. So he found a company, he found a advertisement in a magazine, but it was a, it was a British magazine. And it was for molds for a kayak. And he bought a mold from this company in the UK. They had never exported one to the US. So they weren't exactly sure how to do it. Uh, Pete had never imported one to the US. So he wasn't exactly sure how to do it. So he and Ann drove down to, I believe it was in Boston and they picked it up when they finally figured it out and got here. So he started building whitewater kayaks for him and his friends uh, out of fiberglass. And uh, as he liked, used to tell the story, they would paddle them on Saturdays and repair them on Sundays. Because <laughs> uh, fiberglass and hitting rocks really hard don't really work well. Right, right. Um, so 
he was doing that for a while. Uh, he was never much of a daredevil. So when I asked Lee what type of whitewater kayaker Pete was, she replied a very careful one. Uh, so uh, he ended up eventually taking a trip to uh, the Adirondack Museum uh, in Blue Mountain Lake. And when he was there walking through the exhibits, he saw the Sari Gamp that's on display there, uh, which is a boat built by John Henry Rushton for uh, a writer back in the 1880s uh, named George Washington Sears, who went by the pen name Nesmuk. Uh, so Pete saw that little boat there. It's a little nine foot wooden boat that weighs 10 and a half pounds and decided to study a little bit about Rushton uh, and saw uh, in the study there got kind of the plans for uh, Rushton's Wee Lassie, which is probably the most famous of all the pack boats. Um, there's many companies out there that make themselves a boat now that measures 10 foot six inches and has similar stylings and they call them a Wee Lassie. Uh, so Pete got the plans for that. Uh, George Washington Sears was a little guy who's five foot three. So, you know, Pete being six one needed something bigger. And so he designed kind of off that a boat that had a little bit of a wider beam, a couple inches wider, a little deeper, but had a lot more capacity. So it went from a boat that, you know, was a 140 pound person to somebody that was 200 pounds and created uh, what he called the lost pond boat. Uh, which is what we today, we still build that boat. It's still our best seller. Uh, that's the 10 foot classic as we refer to it most commonly. Uh, I believe Lost Pond Boats was what he tried to have the company name be originally and it just never caught on and everybody just kept calling it Hornbeck Boats. So we went with it. Um, <laughs> so that 10 foot classic is the, uh, it's the, the bread and butter of Hornbeck Boats. Uh, we've been building it, the hull unchanged for 45 plus years. Uh, wow. Some of the molds we have out there are some of the original molds that we keep rehabbing and using time and time again. Now, so just going back to yeah. Circa wise of him, um, you know, visiting Blue Mountain and stuff, what was that like? He, say, 75, I want to say, when yeah. he designed the 10 footer. Wow. Uh, they moved That's to the cool. Adirondacks here in 71. And were the first ones, the first ones weren't Kevlar. I can't, were no, they? they were glass. Everything was being built out of fiberglass at that time. Kevlar, Kevlar was introduced to the market in, I believe, 68, but it wasn't really readily available until the late 70s. Okay. Uh, so he was building most of those boats out of fiberglass. So there's some red ones out there, some green ones out there, uh, but they were all the same boat. Uh, the wood has changed a few times over the years and other things of that nature has changed. The materials change, but it's, but it's the same thing. So he got his hands on some Kevlar in the late seventies. Uh, I think it was 78, 79, and he built a boat out of it. And Kevlar is far more durable than fiberglass, far lighter than fiberglass, but a little harder to work with. It's not as easy to cut and shape and things of that nature. You can't really finish it afterwards. And, but he built one out of Kevlar and picked it up and paddled that and said, why would I ever use fiberglass again? <laughs> so now in your layups, do you have any glass or no? no there any, we don't. No we don't. The only, 
the only thing we're using fiberglass for is when we're building a new mold. Okay. Uh, we build those out of fiberglass. But other than that, everything is is primarily Kevlar. That's the material we use the most of. Really? And it's, wow, that's cool. I've made some boats in there and I don't, I don't, not very good at it. Um, and uh, I don't know how many, do you disclose like how many layers you put in there and stuff like that? Is it one layer? Is it 10 layers? I'm oh, just curious. So it varies from boat to boat, uh, but the, it's a balance of strength and weight, right? Mm -hmm. Because the goal is to have an ultralight boat, but you want to have an ultralight boat that's durable and uh, functional. So there's two full plies of material. There's a full skin. There's a bunch of structural components. So there's ribs, spines, body panels, uh, stems that go into the, the bow and stern. Uh, so with some places you could be eight to 10 plies thick. Other places you might only be three plies thick. Uh, it really just depends on what part of the boat you're looking at. Got it. And, you know, the layup schedule as we, as it's referred to, uh, we have that down pretty good now. It's changed over the years and we've, you know, kind of improved it over the years. So if you were to pick up a boat from, you know, say one of the first Kevlar boats and one of the Kevlar boats we build now, uh, those first Kevlar boats, if it say it was unused and hermetically sealed up and you pull it out and pick them up, it would probably be a little bit lighter than the current one, but the current one is going to be more durable and function better. <clears throat> Got it. Have stiffness where we want it. And um, do you vacuum them? I'm curious. We don't. We don't. We've we've looked at vacuuming. We we've done some infusion hulls. Uh, we've but but we're not. We don't see a weight savings significant a significant weight savings yeah. from it. I think I remember uh, talking to Pete about this once yeah. at a show, and and he was saying the same thing. They, that you guys got it down pretty good. So I'm gonna. I'm going to take you on a journey here for a second. Sure. Ask you a couple of questions. Just um, in regards to the boats, there's a lot of different uses for them. This kind of is like a fly fishing podcast a little bit, but it's yeah. it's yeah. mostly about being outside and talking about right. people um, that I think are um, interesting. And um, so these boats are pretty light, and you've got a whole range of them, sure. from heavy from from light to heavy. Can you talk about the ranges for a second? And I also want to ask, how, you know, how to transport them and stuff like that. But first yeah. of all, give people an idea of like how light they are. Okay. So, so the boat that we sell the most of that 10 foot classic, uh, we build that, but we build all our boats in a couple of different profiles, different depths, right? Somebody that's 120 pounds and somebody that's 190 pounds, they need different levels of boat because of how much displacement you're going to have. Uh, so the 10 foot classic in the mid profile is going to start at about 15 pounds, uh, 16 pounds in the high profile. So, you know, that's going to be a boat that will fit somebody six feet tall, 200 pounds. You're going to have a 16 pound boat. Now they're going to have to pack minimally. You're not taking a lot of stuff along in that at that point, but that's where we start. Uh, from there, you know, the majority of the boats that we sell are, are 10 and 12 feet. We do start to sell some some bigger, longer boats. Uh, we've got 13 foot and 14 foot boats. 14 foot tends to be where we cap out in the solo boats for the most part. Uh, after that, we sell some solo slash tandem boats. Uh, those started as a thing that Pete would build because guys would come and buy a boat for themselves and go home with it. And their wives would get mad at them that they bought something for themselves and that they couldn't <laughs> use for them. 
Yeah. So he built these boats that were solo slash tandem. So you could use it primarily as a solo, and then you can switch around the backrest a little bit and go out and paddle as a tandem. I don't know if you've ever paddled a boat tandem where you're sitting and you're using a double-bladed paddle, uh, like if you've paddled a tandem kayak or something of that nature. It's a pretty miserable experience for most people. <laughs> so okay. uh, he always referred to them as divorce boats. Okay. But we have them. And some people like it. You know, there's, there's some people that it fits for, but the majority of what we do are going to be solo boats that are going to range from 15 to 25 pounds. And Josh, the, um, the nature of paddling, I guess there, I don't know what the terminology is, but your boats, you generally sit in them, not necessarily on them on a seat, right? You kind of yeah. sit in them kind of yeah. almost kayakish, right? Right. Right. And, so and they're double bladed, all of them. Primarily, I mean, you can use a single blade paddle, but it's a different paddling experience. Primarily, you're going to use a double bladed paddle. Okay. Uh, and these are all, like I said, this is all stemming from, you know, the the, the Rushtons uh, that were built, what he referred to as pack boats. Right. So okay. you sit on the bottom, you use a double bladed paddle. That way you can go with a lighter, smaller boat and have a more efficient uh, paddle stroke with it. Right, right. So I, here's a here's an interesting question for you, maybe. Sure. Um so I've got a, I've got a lot of different boats some kayaks and stuff. And I, I paddle quite a bit and, um, how a boat tracks and, uh, you know, I'll give you a perfect example. My wife has a stand up paddleboard. She loves it and that they're cool, but there's some wicked, uh, fins on that thing yeah. that make it want to go straight. So trying to turn it like yeah. it kind of sucks. Okay. Yeah. But that's okay. Cause that's, you know, you're mostly like sure. set, you know, setting a vector, and you're going, but like if I'm paddling the Moose River or some or the Oswegatchie and stuff like that, you're turning all the time. Yep. How how are your boats in regards to that? Because um, they're they're an Adirondack boat and a lot of water in the Adirondacks. You're you're turning and moving and stuff. Yeah. Can you talk about that? Yeah. Uh, so tracking and maneuverability, there's a trade-off, right? The better something tracks, the less maneuverable it's going to be. Typically, just like you're, you're the stand-up paddleboard you're talking about there. You've got the fins underneath it, the, the, the skegs, and that, that's going to track really, really well. But it's going to be tough to turn. Then you can have something that, that's really easy to turn, but that's going to not track so well because it's going to want to wander around a little bit. So there's a balance to, to those two things. Uh, so with our, with our boats, you know, they're going to track pretty well. The longer it gets, the better it's going to track but then the less maneuverable it's going to be. Um, the 10 foot classic and the 12 foot classic are our two best sellers. Uh, both of those boats are gonna track pretty well, but one of the things that you're gonna, that's going to affect your tracking is your paddling and your paddle stroke, okay? So if you're using a single blade paddle, you're paddling on one side quite a bit, even if you get a J in there where you're slowing yourself down and becoming a little less efficient, you're going to drift a little bit to the other side. If you're using a shorter paddle, a shorter double-bladed paddle, like somebody who kayaks, and you do a high-angle stroke, those high-angle strokes tend to be a little bit of a longer stroke. You tend to take that paddle blade past your hip. And as you do that, you're effectively turning the boat. You're kind of acting like a little bit of a rudder. So what we use is we use a longer paddle. We use a, and, and we want a low-angle stroke. The low-angle stroke is going to be pretty short. It's going to be basically the length of your thigh. And you're going to pull the paddle blade out before it goes past your hip. And at that point, the next paddle blade is going to go in there. 
And by doing that, you're going to keep that boat tracking nice and well on that straight line. That makes perfect. That makes oh. perfect, perfect sense. And I, I think that's, um, you know, expectation in, in products and product design and stuff and what they're designed for there, you know, a lot of that, um, was important that it's disclosed and stuff. I, I mean, I make a lot of short, lightweight fly rods and people, you know, are like, well, you know, can I use your five footer to catch largemouth bass? Well, yeah, I mean, you could try. It's not what it's for. Right. Um, and, and, you know, the, a hornback, uh, 12 foot classic, for example, yeah. it's not something I think you're going to do the 90 miler with, or try to go out when there's a one foot chop, but the nature of those boats, if correct me if I'm wrong, is, going out on ponds and stuff and where it might not be too, too rough. And also if you did want to maneuver a small, you know, a, a slow yeah. meandering stream, they're awesome for that. Right. So you're with the classics, uh, which is the one we've been talking about primarily here. The classics are going to handle chop really well. That, okay. that bolt design has a hollowness in the bow and the stern that look kind of like a cheek. So what happens, and then, there's a, and then there's a roll to the side, a curve to the side. So the water wants to push underneath the boat, and that boat wants to bob up and down like a cork. All right. Okay. So there's a woman in her 70s that paddled the 90-miler in the 10-foot classic. No kidding. Yes. Yes. Wow. Grand. Uh, she took smoke breaks along the way, too. But she did it. <laughs> she completed it. Um, it was hard. Lives at, she lives at Bacon, and uh, right. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, I was I was very surprised that she did it. That was the same year she did it. The same year of my first year of doing the ninety in one of our other boats, and uh, I would you know I'd pass her every day and say hi to her and talk to her for a bit. But but uh, yeah yeah. So so you can use it on those bigger bodies of water. I mean you know the path of the ninety miler is basically it's modified a bit, but it's essentially the first 90 miles of the Northern Forest Canoe Trail. Mm -hmm. And there's small water. There's really twisty water. If you want to talk about things like the Racket River or Brown's Track, I mean, Brown's Track is, is oh, yeah. really twisty turning. Yeah, right. You come out of Brown's Track and you're right in the middle of Racket Lake. Like right. to talk about going from something twisty turning to being in something that's big open water that's never smooth. I mean, it's always rough water out there in Racket Lake in my experience. Mm -hmm. uh, so you can absolutely do those sorts of things. Now, the other boats that we make, the new tricks, those are the ones that are a little narrower and more streamlined. Those are going to be more like a kayak. It's one of these are Pete's later designs. They're quicker and more nimble, but you sacrifice that initial stability and that lift to have. That. So when I'm paddling the 90 miler, I'm doing it in something that's, you know, 16 feet long with a 22 inch beam. Mm -hmm. It's tippy, but yeah. it's quick. Right. Uh, if I were to do it in something like the, the the classic, it's going to be a little wider. That's going to have a lot more stability, but it's not going to have the same speed for me. So it's right. it's a matter of what you're what you're looking for and what's going to make the most sense for you. Got it. You know, Got from it. the world of fishing, from the world of fly fishing, which also when those boats, the, the similar characteristics are people that are doing photography, uh, people that are doing those sorts of things. Those are the boats that are going to make the classic. It's going to make the most sense because that's a boat that you can just sit out there in the middle of a body of water and it's going to bob up and down. Uh, it's not going to be tossed around by the waves very much. If a, you know, if a boat comes by and hits you with a big wake, yeah, you're going to get pushed around, pay attention, but, but it's <laughs> not, it's not the end of the world. Right. Right. Um, 
and you can learn these boats pretty quick. I, I have to say, and I see a lot of, a lot of elderly people that use them and stuff uh, too. The only, the only thing I could say that is a little getting used to is getting in it and sitting down in it versus yeah. sitting on a seat. But that's, you know, you, you learn that and that's how it goes. So, um, so Josh, do you, do you like, do you like doing this? Do you enjoy making boats and stuff? I do. I do. Um, you know, Pete, Pete and Ann hired me in May of 2018 to be the transition plan. He wanted to uh, spend some more time doing the stuff that he wanted to do, painting watercolors, going out camping with his friends, going fishing, stuff like that. Uh, and so we've been having, we had a gradual transition over the past few years. And then, uh, you know, a year ago, the pandemic hit and that changed the way that everything functioned. Uh, but I came on board and I was, you know, really excited. I was going to be doing something that I, you know, really liked. I really got into paddling. I've done the 90 miler a couple times, uh, and as well as some other races I've gone out and just, you know, like to, to do those sorts of things. Uh, I go out with my kids, my, my eight-year-old and 11-year-old both have their own boats and they've been paddling with me for three, four years. They go out in their own little boats with me. So it's, it's something that I really like to do. Uh, being my own boss at this point, effectively, uh, man, I work a lot harder than I used to. <laughs> so it's, it's, I'm trying to come up with a better balance of those sorts of things. You know, I find myself all the time, uh, all the time working. And, uh, my wife tells me a lot, you know, you need to, you need to turn off, um, so I try to do those things to get back out in the wilderness with my kids and turn off the phone. And are you are you guys in a growth mode? Or are you in a just like you got so many orders you just fill in orders? So we were in a mode uh, from Hornbeck boats had kind of grown organically over the years, right? Pete went from selling you know five ten boats a year to kind of getting to a point where they were about three hundred boats a year, and that was kind of the the plateau for a while there. Uh, I'm going to say that was about uh, 12 plus years ago. Then he came out with his new design, the new trick. There were, there were all of a sudden there were more people that started getting into the pack boat industry. Uh, like what happens when people see there's, there's a market here. Let's, yeah, let's right. So more people started getting into that and they went a different route with their boats. They went, well, let's, instead of having it look like a canoe, let's have it be more kayak like. So more streamlined, a little quicker, uh, that sort of thing. And that kind of drove Pete, got him reinvigorated to, to do some new designs. And that's where the new trick came from. Uh, when he originally called it the new trick, he was like, see, you can't teach an old dog a new trick. So that's where that design came from. <laughs> that's cool. Uh, that's our more streamlined boat. So now you're going to go for, you know, the classics, curvy, uh, look like that traditional Adirondack styling. Um, you can see kind of the, the evolution. You can see kind of, you look at it and you look at a guidebook and you can see, okay, I can see how these are family and how these came from the same, mm -hmm. same area, same region. Uh, so they're going to be like a 30 inch wide boat, typically some a little skinnier, some a little wider, but right around that 30 inches. The new tricks are going to be closer to 25. So you're 25 inches, you've we've gotten rid of the curve. So now instead of having a boat that has that natural lift, you have a boat that's gonna slice through the water more. So they're gonna be quicker and they're gonna be more, more nimble. 
you're able to really lean the boat when you want to do those turns. So if I lean right and drag the paddle on the left, I'm going to make that turn to the left a lot faster than somebody can in the classic. But I'm going to sacrifice that initial stability. When I'm just sitting there in the water, my hips are moving constantly with the water to keep that boat level. Mm -hmm. So it's a, it's a trade-off. So once he brought that boat in, that opened a new market to us. Now it was no longer just, just fishermen and old ladies. Uh, now it started getting into younger people that wanted to go out and paddle boats and wanted to have something that was a little bit more sporty, wanted a kayak, but don't necessarily want a deck and hatches and all the weight that goes with it. You know, but there's a lot of, there's a lot of pros to kayaks, but there's also a lot of things that they don't necessarily make sense for everybody. Yeah. So from that point, we started to grow and get to more of an area of, you know, 450 to 550 boats a year. So through from, from 2018 was our high water mark where we hit 600 boats. And then 2019 was a little bit of a regression year for paddle sports in general. Uh, And we were back down to the low 500 boats for 2019. So we weren't sure what to expect for 2020. And we were looking at, you know, when you've got time to go, go back and, okay, are there boats that we can do some different design work with? Can we improve some things? And then the pandemic happened. Uh, And March 20th last year, I sent all the guys home and said, I don't know when you're coming back. Uh, You know, you've got a vacation, go home and we'll figure out what's going on. And we kind of treaded water for a couple months there while we were waiting to see what happened. What we did find was, you know, we weren't able to build boats anyway, but we'd had boats for inventory at that point because we've been building all winter. So I started getting calls. You know, I forwarded the, the Hornbeck boats number to my cell phone and started getting calls through the end of March and through April. And so I started doing sales by, you know, local-ish delivery. I'll do a contact list. I'll drop it off on your front lawn. We'll stand there in the masks. We'll wave at each other from 10 feet away and, you know, talk and answer questions. Uh, I did some, you know, curbside pickups for people here. I'll get the boat set up for you. It's going to be right here in the grass. I'll wave at you from over here and answer any questions type of thing. And then when we reopened, uh, May 30th of last year was when, you know, we hit phase two for New York. We in Essex County were able to do it on the 29th, but we weren't sure necessarily how that was going to work. So on the 30th, uh, which is a Saturday, we opened for uh, customers. And we also changed the way we did things. We went to a completely by appointment because we didn't want to have too many people here at one point in time. Mm-hmm. Right? We wanted to keep everybody safe. Our schedule was full the entire summer. It was very rare that we had openings. Uh, and all of a sudden last year we had you know, we went from 600 being our high water mark to 775 boats. Wow. So uh, it was, it was a lot. Yeah. And Do you, it, I, I'm just, I'm curious, did you, why were people buying boats? Were, were they like bored or were they like really sincerely kind of like, well, I really want to go out in the wilderness, you know, cause I find sometimes in today's, I'm going to, I'm going to babble for a second. Sometimes I feel like people like they don't know what to do. They got money. They go buy something. And like, just because like that, that's their, that's going to make them happy because they're going to go buy something. I just, I'm curious, like, were, was there these, these sincere, like, I want to go 
get outside in the outdoors. And that is going to be uh, how I'm going to nourish my soul kind of thing. Or was it a mix of, I'm just going to go get this cool bow. What did you think? I think, I think it's a little bit of both. Uh, I think that last year, if you look at the businesses that did really well through the pandemic, they're businesses that allow people to separate from each other. So whether it's camping equipment, whether it's RVs, whether it's boats, bikes, any of those sorts of things, last year was insane for all of them. Bike sales, I think we're up 100% over the year before. Um, paddle sports was up something like 65, 70%. So it was a fair amount of that uh, because it wasn't just, you know, Hornbeck boats that did well last year, anybody that built any kind of canoe or kayak was selling boats like crazy. Uh, you know, the big manufacturers, you know, shut down or, or closed, closed the sale, said, we can't build any more boats and what's ordered, this is it. You're waiting till the fall, winter, spring. Uh, paddles, you know, our primarily paddle manufacturer is Werner Paddles out of uh, Salton, Washington. We also carry Aquabound, uh, slash bending branches, which we just started carrying last year because Werner, who'd always been able to turn around paddles for us, could no longer turn around the paddles for us that we needed. So we had to add more. Uh, there was a shortage on everything. You couldn't get bike racks. You couldn't get the parts and pieces, just anything that had to do with outdoor sporting goods. The other thing that did really well was home improvement because it allows you to separate from people. I can't be near people. I got to stay home. Well, I'm going to make my deck nicer. I'm going to put in a pool. I'm going to improve my bathroom because I'm here more often. Right. This is now my office. So let's make it nicer. So those types of things did really well. And it's also because people had more expendable income. Some of it was, uh, you know, the, the, the payments that came out from the, the government, the, the stimulus stuff, the stimulus stuff that came out. But some of it was also, I'm not going out to eat as much. I had to cancel my vacation to Florida. Uh, you know, I'm not commuting to work and I'm saving $50 a week in gas. All those sorts of things started to add up. And so people okay. had a little bit more expendable income. And the biggest barrier to entry for somebody who wants a lightweight boat is that initial cost. Because once you buy the boat and you buy the paddle, you don't have to fill the tank. There's not really any cost to it. There's not much upkeep to it. You're not paying somebody to dock it somewhere. Mm -hmm. So there's a high initial investment. And then after that, it's free. There's tons of water all over that you can use without paying anything at all. Right. So anecdotally now, I think if you went out there last summer and you went to places to paddle, you saw a lot more people doing it. Yeah. So especially if you went to the places that were easy to get to, because those were the people that bought all the heavier boats. That was true. Fishing and river fishing too. Right. Right. So, and, and by the way, Josh, you got to yeah. make sure just so that people can, you know, set expectation price range on the boats from, uh, you know, low, middle, high. Can Most of what we sell is between 1500 and $2,000. Okay. The majority of the boats that we sell, uh, the 10 foot classic, which is again, our best seller starts at 1495. Uh, well, as you know, I just bought a boat for my yep. wife from you guys. Yeah. And besides from the fact that I wanted a boat that was from you, um, and just to let everybody know, we are saddened that you you did lose Pete um, uh, recently, and we're sorry about that, Josh. 
And I wanted a boat that was a hornback boat because I very much looked up to to Pete. Mm -hmm. Um, However, or in addition, when you looked at the boats that are out there, your boats are very, very competitively priced compared to some other makers out there. So, So when people do listen to this, I would actually tell them, listen to what you said about, you know, 40 some odd years of making boats. Look at some other boats out there, small boats and what they go for you're really really reasonably priced um i did want to ask you one kind of interesting question now i make right i have a company that makes for fly rods some of them a lot of them are custom i i have a, a wide range of rods and i and i still make a lot of the rods and I don't necessarily get bored too much because like I can always tweak the colors a little bit. A lot of people, when they place an order, you know, they're like, just have a little fun with it, do whatever you want. So I don't get too, too bored with them, but you guys are, it's like Kevlar, (laughs) your matrix graphite. I'm curious from just personally, are you ever like, Oh man, like I wish I could just like change this up a little bit or, or, or not. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, I want to, if you don't mind, I'm going to back up a little bit to where you were talking about how we were priced pretty reasonably. Yeah. Uh, The one thing I want to say to that, and you can probably attest to this a bit because of your fly rods, is we're direct. So we build our own boats, we sell our own boats. There's no distribution channel, there's nothing of that nature. So that starts to cut away, you know, where markup would be going. Uh, Yeah, good point. The other thing is uh, when you, many of our competitors do vacuum bag and do use something called a gel coat. So a gel coat is, if you see any of those boats out there, they're the pretty colors, the greens, the blues, the reds, that's where you're spraying a gel coat in there, which is just, it's a layer of resin. It adds weight to the boat and it adds cost to the boat. So our boats are minimalist. Every piece of that boat serves a function with the exception of the red stripe. The red stripe just lets you know it's a hornbeck. Everything else on that boat serves a function. The seat doubles as flotation. The backrest doubles as a thwart. There's all sorts of things that we've you know, been able to refine over the years to really make it so that the boat is very streamlined. Uh, and from that viewpoint, it's also that we've got our facility here where we sell direct from. So we've, we've got that. We've got a pond here where you can try it. You can do the full story here. So because of the fact that everything's kind of self-contained, it really allows us to keep the cost down uh, because we want people to be able to go out there and do boats. The best advertising I have is somebody paddling a boat because once somebody paddles a hornback or buys a hornback, they're kind of in this little cult where they're right. really excited about their boat. And then they're out there in the world and it happens all the time. I get calls from people in Ohio. Hey, I met this guy that had one of your boats. He let me pick it up. I need to have one. How do I get one? And that's what happens is people want to say, look at my boat and show it off. Like when you have a new toy, but that new toy lasts, that that feeling lasts for a long time with people if they're really enjoying their boat. And a lot of the people that have bought our boats are now able to get out there and do something that they weren't able to do before, right? That Mm -hmm. 75-year-old woman probably couldn't put the 30-pound kayak on top of her vehicle, but now she's got a 15-pound boat. She can put that up there or get a minivan and it fits inside of it. So there's all sorts of things like that. So we want people to use boats we're not going to have an excessive markup in the boats. Uh, we just want to be able to, you know, keep Hornbeck boats going here and, and you know, keep uh, kind of adding to the paddle sports industry. So that's, that's kind of why our costs are different when you look at some of our competitors. 
when you look at the way that they do business versus how we do business. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think I sidetracked a little bit there, but I just no, that's to- good. Those are good points. Cause I mean, talking about putting a boat inside a, uh, a van is yeah is, yeah the 10-6 fits inside a sienna minivan yeah. i can tell you that because i can think of four 80 plus year old women off the top of my head that have bought the 10-foot boats <laughs> that fit inside their sienna minivan that is so cool so um, i uh, yeah let's i do want to hear do you do you guys sometimes are you like oh my god i gotta do like you know 10 more classics <laughs> well so we uh the reason we got into some different materials is is he got tired of looking at yellow Kevlar <laughs> all day, every day. Yeah. So originally the boats, you know, were, were you dye the resin and you make it out of fiberglass so you can make it whatever color you want. Uh, then it was, I found Kevlar, I'm going to make the boats that are yellow Kevlar. Well, my mother-in-law, Anne, was looking at the yellow boats floating out in the pond with people in them. And she said, those look like floating Euro sample, urine samples. You got to put a red stripe on them or something. So that's where the red stripe came from. So now it's, you know, so now that that kind of became the thing. So then uh, it was probably maybe 15 years ago, Pete got tired of Kevlar all the time. and was talking to one of our distributors and they said, hey, I've got this sample of this new material. You know, it's a hybrid matrix, we call it. And it's a cross of carbon and Kevlar. So we built a boat using that as the skin, using that as the first layer of material that went in. And the boat came out looking kind of greenish. And he went, well, that's cool. All right, let's get some of that. So we started building boats with that. Uh, another thing that people really like the look of is some people just really like the look of carbon fiber. It looks modern and space age. So we'll use that for a skin on some boats. Uh, last year, I got a new material for us to play with that I thought looked kind of cool. It's a basalt and negra. So it's a blend of basalt, which is a rock and a negra, which is a, another aramid type fiber. Uh, it's a mix of white and black. You stand from a distance and it looks kind of grayish or silverish. You get closer to it and you can see the pattern in it. So we've got those different materials that we work with. Uh, we also have different you know, boats that we're building. I've got a team here of six guys. So a couple guys laying up boats, a couple of guys putting on wood on boats floating around and we can trade up jobs you don't necessarily need to be laying up boats every day you can go put on wood in the wood shop and take so off you guys are cross so they're cross trains so that's right. cool right we try to get everybody cross trained i don't want it we we tried to uh keep it from being too kind of team us against them we want everybody to kind of be one team so you can go in and lay up a boat but you can also go in and put wood on you can put foot braces in you can put air tanks in the boats that we need them for like the solo tandems you can build the backrests and, and do the things of that nature. Everybody can do all the little things. So the guys, some of them really like laying up because you put a you put a mask on with a supplied air system, you get your Tyvek in there. And for the hour or so that you're in there laying up that particular boat with the other guy where you're not really talking to each other because you're both, you know, you're you're both doing your ends and you just kind of get in your groove and yeah. You know, they can think about things and plan things or listen to music or podcasts in there or, you know, just kind of relax. Yeah. Um, it's kind of a dance, too, I imagine, between two people that know what they're doing. It can is. Read, it can is. read the other person's what they're doing, you know. It, it takes a little, it takes a little, uh, you know, when it's two people that haven't laid up boats together, uh, you get in there and there's kind of a little bit of a adjustment time period where you get used to each other and how <laughs> yeah. everybody does everything a little bit different, right? 
Yeah, um, yeah. And that's fine. As long as the boats follow the, the layup schedule and the resin's the same and the material's the same and they come out looking nice, you can do it whatever way's easiest to you as long as you follow that, that guideline. So start to finish, what what are you looking at? And I, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to lead, lead you into this a little bit because uh, people ask me this all the time with fly rods and, and you know, our higher end rods get two coats and I really like to let them cure for a day and a half yep. between coats. So like, if you really want to think about it, it takes three, four days to sure. make a rod, but it's really not that much right. labor. And, you know, you and I both work in epoxy resins and stuff. Yep. What do you, how do you answer the question? I'm sure people ask you all the time, start to finish how, you know, how long does it take? What's your answer? So my answer is if the parts are prepped and the two guys are getting ready to lay up a 10 foot classic, they're going to get it done in about 45 minutes. But then for the, lay gonna, for the layup, for the layup, right? But then that boat's going to sit there overnight and cure in that mold. You know, we're going to come back to it after an hour. We're going to trim off the excess and allow that resin to cure because it's going to be, it's green. We're using a, we're using primarily a polyester resin, uh, so it's going to be, you know, still green as we would call it, and we want it to to kind of cure. And then the next day, we can put wood on the boat, and putting the wood on is going to take another guy on a smaller boat, like a 10 footer, a couple of hours. So time on task between making the parts, prepping the materials, and then the actual labor of laying up the boat and the actual labor of putting on the wood for a 10 footer is probably somewhere between five to six hours of total labor hours. Yeah. But a lap time, you're a minimum of 32. Right. So that's, and the first one is a hell of a lot harder to build than, you know, boat number 873. <laughs> yes. Same thing was with, with fly rods. I can yeah. tell you that for sure. Yeah. So, yeah. so, so, so Josh, I'm going to, we're going to get a little bit into the kind of the hidden secrets of, of the yeah. podcast. Okay. So 2018 you're you're getting groomed yeah. for the succession plan. Okay. Yeah. So now I'm going to try to get into Josh's head a little bit and, and I'm going to squeeze out some juice. So there's along the way, there's leadership learnings, there's business learnings, there's yeah. emotional intelligence learnings. Can you disclose to me and everybody, uh, you know, what, what are the things you've learned along the way of doing this, making, uh, you know, hundreds of boats to 700 boats and the end, the pandemic and everything. What, what are these things in the seams that you've learned, please? Sure. So, so a, a little, a little history. I mean, I, I don't, this is something that Pete always told everybody when he first met them about me. And it's not something that I necessarily talk about a lot, but I, I have an MBA um, that I never really got to use very much prior to being here. Right. You, when you, when the economy turns down, you go back to school and get another degree, right? That's what I was, that's what I was told. So I went, I got my MBA and I got all these business systems in place and all these different things in my head. Here's how you can, you know, streamline the manufacturing process. Here's how you can Kaizen this and do this to that. But none of that ever really applied. And, and when I first started here, you know, we kind of just, they had their way of building boats and they wanted to do what they wanted to do. And I wasn't looking to necessarily change that on them. Uh, I did kind of change the supply flow a little bit on the way that we ordered materials and things of that nature. And I made some mistakes. I, you know, tried to maybe trim the amount of stuff we would have on hand a little too much sometimes and other things I would overorder. 
So there was definitely a, a learning curve to that. Uh, Pete had a different way of doing things. He was just, you know, let's, let's just buy a whole lot of paddles right now, whether we sell them or not, let's buy a whole lot of them. I'm like, well, maybe, maybe we can <laughs> buy them more gradually. Yeah, maybe yeah. I don't need to have 400 paddles on here. <laughs> maybe I should have a plan, to... right? Yeah. Maybe, plan maybe, and forecasting and stuff. Right. Right. Got maybe it. it'd be a little bit better if we had that money for payroll in February when we're not selling very many boats versus having $30,000 worth of paddles sitting in the basement in February, you know? So, um, did you so manage people, I, be Josh? Did you manage people before? What's that? Had I managed people before? No, did you manage people before? Did you yeah, have jobs? Not to this level. Having employees is a different story. Right, right. I've been, I've been kind of a manager, but not really like the boss, you know, if that makes sense. Mm -hmm. uh, and I was very different than Pete. Uh, you know, Pete had a, had a, had more of a, uh, I think, a hands-on friends relationship with the guys. And I kind of take a different approach, you know, from my past experience, my boss is my boss. And that doesn't mean I can't be friendly with him. That doesn't mean I can't occasionally have a beer with him, but it also means that I want to be able to complain about him sometimes. And if I'm at lunch with my coworkers and I want to complain about my boss, that doesn't mean I want him sitting at my lunch table chatting with me every day. Right. Mm -hmm. So I try to give the guys a little bit more space on that. And that's a delicate balancing act, you know, probably with the initial crew, uh, I did a little, I did that a little too much and they viewed it as if I thought I was, you know, here's this guy coming in, the son-in-law, he's getting this handed to him, blah, blah, blah. And uh, they kind of thought that I, I, I think there was a perception that I felt that they felt I was, I thought I was too good for them. And meanwhile, my, my reasoning for doing that was, I don't want you guys to feel like I'm standing over your shoulders watching what you're doing. You clearly know what you're doing. Mm -hmm. You know how to build a boat at this point better than I know how to build a boat. So I'm not going to come in here and tell you what to do. You've been doing things. I'm just kind of coming on board. But then that, that first crew kind of, many of them left. You know, Eventually, they, they, I think all of them left eventually. I've got one guy that was kind of a, a layover guy between the two. But they went off to other adventures and different things. Um, partly because I think of, of me and partly just because, you know, sometimes people move on. Uh, I've got a new crew now and they're all my hires and they never, you know, they experienced Pete, but they didn't experience Pete as their direct boss. Like he was their boss because he was my boss. Right. Mm -hmm. But he would tell me that I was also his boss because that was our organizational structure. Uh, depended on the day, whether Pete was the boss or I was the boss. So um, as it often does in these transitions, I believe. So uh, we ended up kind of, you know, with the new crew, just, hey, here's my expectations for you. And, and here's what I'm hoping to get from you guys. If you have problems, you can talk to me. Um, if I have problems, I'll come talk to you. And I will, you know, go in and follow a check in on the guys. I, I see and talk to each of them every day. Uh, but not really, hey, where are we with things? How are you doing with this boat? How are you doing with that boat? I don't really want to do that unless it's okay. I need to know an answer on this. This customer's boat needs to be done by this date. How can we do that? Uh, so I kind of give them the freedom to plan their, you know, plan what they're doing a little bit more. Uh, and we're far more efficient at the way that we're getting boats because we've kind of done that a little bit. Uh, one of the other things that I did, and this is what, where I really learned how to do things was, and I keep coming back to it because it's the, 
preeminent thing of our time, but the pandemic, right? The way that Hornbeck Boats originally was when I came on board was we didn't really have appointments. People just came when they felt like coming to come up and try boats. So it wasn't uncommon that you'd end up with 10, 15 people up at the pond wanting to try boats. You can't really give good customer service when there's 10, 15 people up there mm -hmm. because they all have questions and you can't answer all their questions and three or four of the people are going to want to try the same boat and you don't have enough of that demo there. And so you go from somebody getting here at 10 o'clock to come try boats and being here till two, three o'clock in the afternoon. And most of them would enjoy the experience, but it's an all day experience and it's really not that efficient. Mm -hmm. So what we did is we switched to having uh, three time slots. So we've got two, we've got a morning time slot, a midday time slot, and then an afternoon time slot. And we'll get a couple parties into each time slot. But now we're limiting the amount of people that are up there. So on a Saturday, on a busy Saturday in June, instead of having eight, nine, 10 cars rolling at the same time or within a half hour of each other, we're controlling it a little bit. Right, more. right. So that was something that I definitely, the first couple of years, what we weren't doing. And then I was able to say, you know, this is something that I learned in, in, in grad school. Maybe this is something that we could try. And it worked really well. And the thing that we found was, yeah, there was a trade-off. Some of the customers had previously enjoyed coming here and spending the whole day. But also now some of these customers were enjoying that there wasn't the wasted time and that they got to right. get the answers to the questions that they had. And they got to you know, go through the process and get it done in a couple of hours versus all day. Uh, so that was kind of one of the things that I really learned was if we tweak this a little bit and don't just have it, at, you know, try to, we want it to be relaxed here, but there can be some structure to that relaxing. And that's kind of one of the, the biggest thing that I took on and learned. Um, and I think made a big difference. We never would have gotten through last year had we not switched to doing something of that nature. Yeah. Um, and and look at your and your you know your probably efficient output was was a learning too and probably yeah. pretty motivating you know so yeah. yeah so yeah time you know that's that's i'm gonna start to wrap it up here for sure. a second but um you know time management in regards to customer service is something that a lot of business people have to um, learn. And I've learned it too, because I had a retail store and I'd have a lot of people that would want to hang out in the fly shop and right. drink coffee and stuff like that. And, um, and the truth is, is that there's a balance, yes. you know, and, um, and there's also a level of respect to, to the majority of the customers that, that really want to have their time managed pretty efficiently and effectively. Right. And um, so that's cool that you've learned that. And, and interesting too, about the crew change, yeah, that's, you know that's in an interesting. Coincidentally, part of one of the one of the uh, original crew uh, has decided to come back. Um, so I had an opening, and, and he wanted to take it. So you know, I talked to him about how things are, and it's a little different now. And he's 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 on board, and he's he's game for it. So uh, that'll be good to get him back in the fold. Good. Uh, but good yeah, so, yeah, yeah. Well, listen, man. Um, I appreciate you being uh, on the on the podcast, and I do want to make sure that people are going to hear this from all over the place. Do you guys ship boats? Do, can you get boats outside the state? <laughs> we do, uh, but it's it's not everywhere. Okay, uh, 
so we, talk, used ship, so, we used to ship freight, but they would just break. They broke so many boats. So basically, I have a couple of guys that I work with that do delivery service. Gotcha. Okay. One guy drives up and down I-95 on a monthly basis from here to Florida. And I can get boats with him. You know, he'll go within 100 miles of I-95. I can make that happen very easily. Mm-hmm. The other guy that I work with does a delivery service where he'll go as far west as Denver. He's taking both to Texas for me. It's just a matter of it needs to be enough things in his whole right, right. route for it to make sense, right? Yeah. yeah. Uh, so so I've got a couple of boats going to uh, Denver next month with him, uh, cool. Wisconsin and, and one to St. Louis, Missouri. So, I mean, we can. It, it, the, the good answer, the, the best answer is it depends. You know, right. You've got a lot of demand from Seattle. I can't get both to Seattle. Right. That's, well, that's it's not a hard no. And yeah. the, and I think that was the thing I want to make sure that people heard from you was, you know, talk yeah. to you. It's not just a necessarily a, a upstate New York type of thing. There's a lot of heart and soul to your boats. Uh, and there's also a, a lot of history to the boats in regards to the Adirondacks and the, and the reason they were made and stuff. And I think that that's really cool. Um, the world does sometimes get a little smaller. I mean, there's a, I think there's an Adirondack guideboat company or something in California. Yep. And I'm like, Oh, my oh God. Really? you know? Yeah. And while they're, they're, I don't want to, it's a catalog of, of very nice stuff. Uh, I'll leave it at that. <laughs> um, but anyway, uh, Josh, listen, uh, God bless you and your family. Um, I'm so glad that you were on here. We're really looking forward to getting a boat. I'm yeah. I'm very much looking forward to stillwater fishing some more this year with my wife and stuff. Um, and I hope that you stay in touch with me and um, and I can lead some more people your way to enjoy the outdoors. Um, yeah. It's a wonderful, wonderful experience to to be in a boat where you're sitting on the bottom and it's open. And it's lightweight. It's not a hassle to get on and off or and transport and stuff. You can throw it over your shoulder. You can throw it over your head. Um, you know, uh, it's just a really great product. Carry them five six miles. Yeah. yeah. When I did a I did a podcast recently with the destination angler, and when I told him that people like myself will walk miles and miles, uh, you know, with these boats, he was like, "What?" And I said, "Yeah, you don't need waders and carry all that stuff. By the time you." By the time you pack your waders and your and yeah. your wading boots, you got a boat. You, you got to get to those brook trout that nobody else can get to. <laughs> right. right. Just get outside and have fun, really. So, yeah. all right, man. Well, I'm going to have the kids coming home soon. It's going to get okay. a little loud. So, um, sounds good, man. Thanks for being on the podcast. No problem. And hey, welcome to the cult. You're going to enjoy it. Thanks again for tuning in to In The Scene Podcast. Please do hit the subscribe button and listen up for more episodes coming up. And you can follow us on Instagram and Facebook and check into our newsletter and subscribe on there too at jprossflyrods.com. See you in the next episode. Bye-bye.